This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you cannot watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he said, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship. I want to add my welcome to that of, of Mike's row. And um, let me get my timer set here. Countdown timer, one hour, 27 minutes, and 15 seconds. I know some of you uh, get really nervous when I step up to the the podium because, anyway. um, Well, last week, uh, Pastor Mike Stroh employed this image of preppers, right? As an image, as as Jesus was preparing his disciples for final judgment and... um, I loved when he said that he too is a prepper because he has a Costco membership. I, you might have heard me cackle very loudly. It was a good one. Um, and I was living in to my own inner prepper on Friday. I, I went to Costco at the bidding of my wife to pick up the gluten-free snacks that we have in the fellowship hour, and she cautioned me. It's, you know, um, sending you to Costco is a risk for me. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things I like. If, if you judge your prepperness by the things that you have a lot of, I'm very worried about the end times having a shortage of office supplies. I've got a lot of post-it notes, pen refills, uh, little notebooks that I never use because if you write in them, you might screw it up. Um, so I went to Costco, a lot of office supplies. I walked right by the aisle. Um, but what I wasn't prepared for was my wife's reaction to me buying just a huge tub of double bubble chewing gum, a case of red vines, and a number of other things that that she would never have purchased. My daughter was like, where did these come from? Mom, did you buy these? And she's like, no, your dad did. And she says, well, that makes sense. (laughs) So so kids, send send your dad to Costco. My wife also worries because when I go to Costco, I come home with pants that have an elastic waistband. 
Um, I'm in a bit of denial about my growing waistline as I grow older in, in years. We live in a culture that's in denial about a lot of things. We're in denial about aging. We're in denial about where we find ourselves in our life circumstances. But there's a very significant one I want to touch on this morning. It's a really exciting one. It's death. We live in a culture, a North American culture, that, that is largely in denial about death. Now, I don't think anyone here thinks you're never going to die. But that's not really something that we spend much time talking about or thinking about. Believe it or not, death was a very common theme in Christian sermons and devotional literature up until the last 200 years. Death was an ever-present part of people's lives in a way that, that we haven't had to deal with because toward the end of the 19th century, there's, there was decisive breakthroughs in medical research right? We discovered germs and then anesthetics, and it made death and pain feel that much more distant. And of course, we live in a society that, that spends a lot of time and effort wanting us to buy things that will keep us young, keep us beautiful, prolong the, excuse me, the end of life, right? So, but for most people in history, death was an ever-present ever companion. And it really is, is no different for today. But today, right, being healthy and fit is, is the norm we've seen, right? And being ill is the exception. So I want to ask you to pause for a moment and, and just ask yourself, you know, have, what, what do, how do you envision the end of your life? You, if you're like me, probably have this fantasy that we're going to die comfortably in our sleep in our old age and find ourselves in the presence of Jesus, and, and some will, and some won't, in, on both counts, right? <laughs> Dying comfortably in your sleep and finding yourself with Jesus. That was last week's sermon. But, um, but God has given us a desire, right? The author of Ecclesiastes says that God himself has put eternity into humankind's heart, but we can place our confidence for a long life in many things. Our own fleshly sense of invincibility, particularly if you're healthy and fit. Um, advances in technology, right? Advancements in medical science, and those are all good things. Praise God that he's given humankind the intellectual capacity to develop those things and to, to keep fighting the battle against the enemy that is death. And yet the psalmist David reminds us that life is fleeting. He says everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Not only does the wisdom of Scripture tell us that our life is but a handbreadth or a vapor, but our Lord and Savior tells us that we will have trouble in this life, in this world. That our lives here on earth as Christians will subject us to many trials and sorrows, right? Because the, the cost of discipleship is ultimately death. A death to self-interest in this life, hopefully, if we're maturing. And, and as disciples of Christ, God is equipping us to fight this battle, yet... Yet we may also be not fully prepared to face the trials that God wills for his disciples. We see in our scripture this morning Jesus facing 
his greatest trial in his humanity. And he goes into this garden feeling greatly distressed. So our subject question this morning is, is how do we as faithful disciples face what God has laid before us? How do we overcome the flesh and align our will with the Father's will? And I think the answer is found in our passage this morning, and we're going to look at it briefly, where we see Jesus here praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and inviting his disciples into that. And so we're going to look briefly at the story and then have some applications in the end. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, um, calm my anxious heart this morning. just feel like I have so many things going on in my head and in my heart and things I want to say. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would order my words that you would give us hearts and minds to hear the message that you have for us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Well, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus, in a very sustained way, in a very orderly way, begins to reveal to his disciples that he's going to suffer and die. And we see in the story that the disciples have a difficult time conceiving of that for their Messiah, and he, throughout his ministry, he's modeled this life of taking times of solitude and prayer. And he's taught the disciples the importance of being watchful and alert, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Well, Jesus is now in Jerusalem at the end of his earthly ministry, and the, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the elders of the, the church, if you will, the synagogue, they're plotting to kill Jesus. And Jesus has been giving his disciples some important final teaching. He's celebrated the Passover with them, and he's instituted the Lord's Supper, giving the, the, the image of a Passover meal for, for these Jewish disciples a whole new meaning of eating in flight, uh, Christ's flesh and blood to sustain them on their journey of life, ultimately a journey to their own death. He's continued to remind them that, that they're going to abandon him at the cross, that, that someone's even going to betray them. And after this meal, he leads them to the Mount of Olives. In our passage this morning, starting in verse 6, it says, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, he's got the 12 with him, all except Judas, who's left to take care of some other business. He says, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be troubled. And he said to them, my, my heart, my soul rather, is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here. And watch with me. Now, the Mount of Olives is a favorite place for Jesus. I've not been there. But we know that it has a marvelous view of the city. Jesus, I suspect it's one of those places he liked to go. He found solitude and quiet and comfort there. Gethsemane is a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. So, brilliant seminary degree there. Um... But the name Gethsemane means oil press. Imagine that, that where they would bring the olive harvest and they would press 
the fruit of their harvest and the oil would run out. And it's interesting uh, connection to me because one of the Greek words for suffering literally conveys the image of, of things being pressed upon. So Jesus, in his time of great distress, goes to his favorite place, albeit one with a paradoxical name, to pray. And he brings his disciples with him. But something we should take note of is that, that Jesus' faithfulness in prayer, he doesn't wait until times of distress to pray. Jesus' prayerfulness anticipates the times that will require the strength of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, friends, but I could learn this lesson over and over and over. I often am reminded most to pray when I'm feeling distress, not anticipating it. But he brings Peter, James, and John with him, the, his inner circle of the twelve, if you will. He's brought them with him for, for moral support. I think that's clear. But I think also to model for them and to instruct them and us as to how disciples of Jesus should prepare for what lies ahead in their own lives. He's saying, come and watch the master and be with me. It reveals the very human side of Jesus on so many levels, both that his great distress, his desire to be comforted by the presence of his friends, his desire to, to care for his disciples, but he's also imploring them to remain with him and to keep watch, he says. And to keep watch here does not mean to imply that Jesus' betrayer could, could possibly surprise Jesus, right? Jesus knows what's going to happen. But here, to keep watch means to be spiritually alert. Alert to the temptations of the flesh. Alert to the signs that Jesus has foretold. And present to sharing in the agony of Jesus himself. Luke, in his telling of this story says Jesus was in such agony that he perspired blood. It's, a, it's an actual medical condition that you can be under so much stress that, that the capillaries in the surface of your skin break and, and blood comes from your pores. That's how greatly troubled and distressed Jesus is feeling. I don't know about you, but it comforts me to know that, that even God in the fullness of humanity, of his humanity, knows a level of stress that, that most of us in here probably haven't necessarily endured. You see, Jesus' loyal love for his disciples is such that, that he's faithful to prepare us for every trial of our lives, even death. And that's one important point of two that I hope that you can remember today, that our God is so faithful, our God loves us so much that he wants to be us to be prepared. Again, he's been telling these disciples all along what's going to happen. And God's no different to you and me. Are you personally ready to participate in the trials that God may have willed for your life? It's not something I like to think about. Two weeks ago, I mentioned my leukemia diagnosis and treatment. I, I want to tell you a little bit about how I experienced God's love before that diagnosis, which 
in retrospect, I realized was such a merciful and gracious way God prepared me for terrible news. Well, I was a seminary student. I had a classmate, a good friend, whose husband um, was the pastor of a very large and popular church in the Dallas Metroplex, and, and he had had his own cancer experience. He, he, through a routine colonoscopy, he was discovered to have stage four colon cancer. He was given an 8% chance of survival, um, and he endured a major surgery and months and months of chemotherapy, and spoiler alert, he beat it. Praise God. Through the power of prayer and, and the blessing of modern medicine, in God's graciousness, he beat this disease. And so this, he wanted to write a story about his spiritual journey through the valley of cancer, he calls it. And the insight that he gained into suffering and experiencing trials. And he had written a manuscript and he sold it to a publisher, but the publisher needed him to reformat it in a, in a different way electronically. And so he and his wife were searching for someone who could reformat his manuscript and his wife said, well, I know this guy in seminary who seems really good with computers. It's, it's funny because I was the guy where it's like, hey, I, I can't seem to find the cursor on my screen, you know, and I'd reach over and, and she's a brilliant woman. Please don't hear that as anything. I mean, I've lost my cursor too, but I, I laughed that she thought I was an IT genius because I could help her find the cursor on her screen. And so they asked me if I would... Uh, reformat the manuscript into what the publisher wanted, and, and I said, sure, great. And so I did, and as a, going along the way, I was reading it, and I thought, wow, this is really good. And I joked with his wife one day in class, I'm like, man, you know, this is, this is good. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm reading it, and I'm learning a lot. I sure hope God doesn't have me reading it for a reason. Ha, ha, ha. <clears throat> And so, a few weeks later, I had my own colonoscopy. As I told you, I, get, I wake up from the colonoscopy. I'm presented with this wonderful series of color photos of the inside of my colon. And my doctor's like, looks great. See you in 10 years. That's, that's what you want out of that procedure. And I remember I was walking out of the, or maybe I think my wife had to pick me up. But I, I just remember thinking to myself, man, that's awesome. I didn't get his diagnosis. And I'm going to live to be 85. And uh, as I said, a few days later, I, I get the phone call, and the news is different. But, right, but that day, that's what the end of my life looked like to me. I'm secure in my flesh. I've been a healthy person my whole life. I've exercised. I've run. I don't smoke. I only drink in my office. Just kidding. Um, I'm going to live to 85. And then, right, a couple days later, I get the phone call, and the doctor says, I need you to come back and see me. And we all know that's not good news. And I think, well, you know, maybe it's just some little polyp in my colon, you know, whatever. But um, like I said, I, this tissue biopsy resulted in a leukemia diagnosis, a cancer that's in my lymph nodes. And I remember saying to the doctor, well, lymph nodes, I'm not a biologist or physiologist, but like, there's no lymph nodes in my colon, right? And he's like, right. But leukemia is a really dirty word in my family. 
My dad was diagnosed with leukemia and died eight days later. My aunt before that had died of leukemia, and as a result of her death, her husband killed himself and just destroyed the lives of their family. But I remember thinking at that moment that, you know, okay. And I go back to this book that I was reading. There was a section in one of the chapters entitled, Why Not Me? Right? As our human proclivity is that when something terrible befalls us, we want to go, why me, God? Why me? Right? Even in the end, Job got to that point. Why me, Lord? But in this book, he, he makes this argument that maybe the better question we should be asking God is, why not me? You see, God has told us what he wills for us. God has told us what to expect from this life. God has modeled for us how to live this life. Why should we expect that we would never have to encounter that? And I hope we, all, most of us never do. And praise God that in his great love and mercy that some of us are spared. But, but why not me? And I remember at that point I had driven myself and I remember, I can see it, I'm walking across the parking lot, my blue Honda Pilot, and I think to myself, why not me? And I could have never said that if it weren't for God's graciousness by having me read that manuscript beforehand. <laughs> because you would have, much like I am now, you'd have been shoveling me off the floor in a puddle of tears. In our passage this morning, in verse 39, it says, And going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed and said, My father, if it, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. See, Jesus, he doesn't want to suffer either. Right? It's, it's not our human nature to want to endure these things. And he pleads to his heavenly father. Let this pass from me. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, again, Jesus, he's, he's revealing the fullness of his humanity and his humility before God in this moment, his, his heavenly Father. He's revealing that he wants to be spared the trial, but he's also subordinating his own human will to the will of God. And his prayer reveals part of this mysterious dynamic that, that is prayer, right? These twin assumptions that are in tension with one another, that God can answer every prayer and request, and God wants us to ask for the desires of our hearts, to tell him what he truly wants. Jesus, who knows his mission is to die on the cross, is begging his Father, spare me. God wants us to pray. But the other side of that is that, that God may not be willing, it may not be his will to answer our prayers. And so Jesus says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It shows us that, that God's will must be accepted, not altered. You see, our prayers are not about manipulating God. Our prayers are about aligning our will, about changing our hearts to be aligned with God's will. 
You want to experience freedom and joy in your life? Align your will with God, and you do that through prayer. That's how we do it. You see, prayer enables faithfulness, and persistent prayer aligns our our human will with the divine will. And remembering God's promises gives us the courage to face and endure suffering of all kinds, even up to and including death. It can be difficult to be mindful of the promises of God when you're experiencing trouble in this world. But Jesus' loyal love for his disciples is such as that he never leaves us to suffer alone. And that's my second point. You see, God loves us so much, he wants us to be prepared for these things. And he loves us so much that he says, you and I will never have to endure this by ourselves. That he is with us. When I was diagnosed, my wife was in the third trimester of, of pregnancy with twins. And we had two other toddlers in my home, and you know, when you get a diagnosis, right, you, you start to want to know answers. So in a practical sense, I wanted some appreciation for how long do people survive with this disease, and, and, and when you don't, like, what does that look like, right? So the internet is not your friend in these scenarios. It's a terrible, terrible thing, but if you're human, you'll probably do it anyway. And so one morning as I was lying in bed, and my wife, again, a very strong lady, probably one of the times that I saw her most greatly distressed in my own life. And I'm laying there in bed, and I'm thinking about my eventual demise, and the thought that enters my head is that, you know, Jesus, his suffering that he endured by hanging on the cross cannot be as bad is wasting away and dying in the final stages of leukemia. That was this terrible thought. But that's, that's how I felt. And, and immediately, the Holy Spirit just powerfully reminded me, just these thoughts rushing into my head that said, you know, Jesus hung on that cross and was separated from the love of the Father in some divinely mysterious way, and you will never experience that. He bore the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. You have no idea what that's like. And no matter how bad it gets for you, you will never be alone. I see you. I am with you. I suffer alongside of you. And I asked God for forgiveness that, that I would even have such a thought. But it, but it was a stark and humbling reminder of God's promises that he will never leave me or forsake me. And friends, he will never leave you or forsake you either. And this has been the most transformative thing for me spiritually. This realization that God's goodness is perfect that his will for my life is perfect, that the suffering I might experience or my family or my friends defies explanation. If I believe that God rules the universe according to wisdom as opposed to justice, right? God's wisdom says in some way I can't fully comprehend that in this life we are going to experience trials. But God says I will not leave you. I am with you always. 
And so, friends, that's where we are to draw our strength. And I don't know about you, but it does comfort me to think that the worst that I could physically experience pales in comparison to what Jesus experienced. So if Jesus' prayerfulness is a model of faithfulness, we see that his disciples' sleepiness is this model of faithlessness, right? So Jesus has invited his disciples into a radical relationship with him through prayer. And his idea is, look, enter into this with me. It'll enable you to stand up to the worst that the world can give to you. And yet, as we read in the passage, they go to sleep, right? He says he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he comes back a second time and finds them asleep. And he comes back a third time and he finds them asleep. What I find encouraging about this is that our God, who knows that we're sleepy disciples, that we, in the strength of our own flesh, can't possibly stay awake and keep watch. And yet Jesus keeps coming back and asking them to do it. Knowing they're going to fail him, knowing they're going to abandon him, knowing that one of them is betraying him right in that moment. They're marching to the garden to arrest him. And our God is so good, friends, that even in spite of our frailty, he keeps coming back over and over and over. Pray with me. Keep watch with me. Suffer alongside of me. The drowsiness of the disciples in this moment, it's, 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 it's their human frailty, but it's also their, their failure to recognize how crucial this moment is for them in their journey. Both to love and care for Jesus in his time of need, but also to prepare them for what, what lies ahead. What, what is it that gets in the way of our own faith as disciples? If you're like me, it's, it's comfort and contentment, a busyness and distractions are my biggest enemy. Confident self-reliance or just indifference to our circumstances, I just don't want to think about it. I mean, I'm telling you, even with a, a form of cancer that, that ultimately doesn't have a cure, right? The, the treatment is prolonging my life, thank God. But one day... Maybe not. But even I, in these circumstances, can be a sleepy disciple. Jesus models for the disciples and us in this passage how to overcome our weakness, and it's by staying close to Jesus and keeping watch with Christ. Four quick applications, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. It's the applications, ask, pray, watch, obey. We've been called to pray and enabled to pray by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to ask for more of the Holy Spirit to to overcome our fleshly tendencies. Earl's image of a flash flood this morning, brilliant. Ask God to, to wash over us with his spirit so that we can 
put our fleshly tendencies to sleep themselves and pray, right? Asking is praying. We're asking God to align our wills with his, to come through on what he's already promised, to to call on him and his name for the strength to obey and to love and to live completely for God. And Jesus tells us to watch, right? To be spiritually alert. We've talked about this for the last couple of weeks. Spend every time, every day being spiritually alert. Not just Sundays. Not just prepping for a sermon. Every day. And then lastly, obey. Be submissive and obedient to God's will. Knowing that God himself in his mercy, in his wisdom, he has a perfect view of our lives. He has a perfect view of world history. He has a perfect view of his plan. All he asks us to do is trust him and to obey. And friends, we can be absolutely certain that God's promises are sure and true. Well, trusting God's sovereign control of all things, it's foundation to our own faithfulness. And in prayer, Jesus is showing us is this crucial enabler of a radical relationship to God that will allow us to withstand these external events that feel like they're pressing in on us and want to crush us, even up to and including death. And Jesus' resurrection, friends, is, is proof that he is victorious over sin and death and that death does not have the last word. But that we as fallen and imperfect and broken creatures, that, that we're far from being secure in our earthly life. And this resurrection promise that's held out to us and Christ's promised return coming back to the Mount of Olives is a sure thing. God invited his disciples to watch with him and to pray with him. And God's personal reminder to me and to to all of us friends is that his perfect presence is, is what it is that we can cling to in these difficult times. So as disciples of Christ, may we overcome our human weakness by, by abiding in Christ and engaging in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Father, we just come to you with such thanksgiving and joy that you're a God who although divinely mysterious and and so many parts of you that are incomprehensible and that we can't understand and we don't know, but, but yet you've told us who you are. You've time and time and time and time and time again throughout all of recorded human history have demonstrated your faithfulness, your loyal love, that you uphold your side of the partnership even when we struggle to watch and to pray and to be alert. God, I pray that that as each of us encounter struggles in this life, great and small, that we can always be reminded, Lord, that, that you are a perfectly good God. 
that while we may not understand what it is we're experiencing and why, but God, you are able to use it as part of your grand design for your glory and our transformation. And Father, that that your steadfast promise is that you will never leave us or forsake us. And that you are coming back and that you're going to make all things new again and that any, I don't know what kind of memories we'll have in eternity, God, but I know that, that memories of suffering and sickness and death and loss and tragedy and betrayal, those will all be a far distant memory, God, because of just the, the marvelous goodness which surrounds us. And so, Lord, may we continue to walk as faithful and obedient disciples, praying without ceasing, abiding in your presence, lifting up and encouraging one another in prayer and in our community and communion and fellowship with one another, that we would be found to be faithful and obedient to the end. And we pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.